so kind of approaches like that feel really compelling to me because it's not improvisation composition you know as two different things they're they're the synthesis is much more organic and and uh that's that's super compelling to me and something that i'm always i think you know endeavoring to push more and more into welcome to episode 94 of the base shed podcast my name is ryan roberts What's happening, folks? Uh, I feel like there's some updates I can give. My personal album is headed towards the finish line. I'm stoked about that. I'm so stoked about that. I did a photo shoot yesterday for it, and my friend Gary Fukushima, who is a brilliant piano player and also writes for the LA Times and Downbeat Magazine, will be writing the liner notes for the album. The album is titled Smile. Uh, The album is seven tunes, five of them I wrote. One tune on there is by my dear friend, the late Zane Musa, and the title track was composed by Charlie Chaplin with lyrics by John Turner and Jeffrey Parsons. I will have links and a couple tracks up very shortly for pre-order of the album. Uh, I don't really want to talk about a timeline too much until it's up, until it's officially up and everything's there, you know? You guys know how these things work. I need a little bump in the road can cause a delay. So I will talk about it when it's actually up instead of a projected date because the projected date was actually October 15th. <laughs> and here we are later than October 15th. So, so I will talk more about when it's actually up, but it's happening. It's happening. The recording is preparing for landing and I'm excited about that. Other updates, other updates. What else? What else? Uh, the Bay Shed Academy is forging ahead. We'll be having a launch party at Lemur Music on January 7th, 2023. The folks at Lemur and I will be raising awareness of the Bay Shed Academy throughout the local community down there in San Clemente, California. There's going to be some live performances by the faculty members. The faculty members are uh, Marlon Martinez, fantastic double bassist, and he'll be teaching jazz and classical. Along with Chris Hornung, who is a fantastic classical double bassist and also teaches jazz history and rock history uh, at a couple colleges last time i was down at lemur i think um that we spent a bunch of time just kind of hanging out talking about rock history <laughs> that was a lot of fun uh then i'll be rounding it out teaching uh electric bass and double bass as well uh so definitely stop by lemurmusic.com for anything and everything you need for the double bass there'll be information there about the bass shed academy as well as the bassshed.com uh more stuff more stuff to put together and i will keep you all updated as it all continues to evolve all right all right moving on (laughs) on the episode is composer and double bassist joshua stamper joshua stamper has been a composer and collaborator for nearly 30 years equally at home in jazz classical avant-garde indie alternative Uh, He's worked with filmmakers, dancers, visual artists, poets, and architects. His work reflects a deep commitment to transdisciplinary collaboration. Joshua has also worked as an orchestral arranger, a studio conductor, a session musician for Columbia and Sony, and Concord Records, Lionsgate Films, Warner Brothers Pictures, and Legendary Entertainment. 
He's also worked for a handful of independent labels, including Domino, Dead Oceans, and Mason Jar Music. Joshua's work has been commissioned by several groups, including the Grammy-winning Chamber Choir, The Crossing. He is a McDowell Composition Fellow and is also the recipient of the Lincoln City Fellowship and the New Jersey State Council on the Arts Fellowship. His work has been supported by the American Composers Forum, the Lilly Endowment, the Ann M. and Philip H. Glatt-Bettler III Family Foundation, and the Musical Fund Society of Philadelphia, the Eric Stokes Foundation, and the National Endowment of the Arts. Joshua's PR team had reached out to me to see if I might be interested in having him on the podcast to chat about his latest album titled Soma Schema. This is Stamper's 12th release as a leader. Soma Schema is an opus of compositions and audio collages inspired by Oliver Messian's time-stretching processes, chopped and screwed remix techniques, and the harmonic worlds of Bill Evans and Wayne Shorter. So... Right? He's coming from a lot of places with it. I mean, those ones specifically, that's not a lot. That, was, that wasn't a lot, but it's a lot. Like If you check out the record, it's a lot. So after they sent me a copy of the record, of course, I checked it out. It's absolutely brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Joshua weaves together like all these different genres in a way that's, that's really amazing. Each stylistic influence has space to exist independently while while contributing to the to the entirety of the piece in a very deliberate and necessary way. Like how he kind of weaves just all these styles and vocabularies and sounds together. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, Joshua's album dropped on October 10th, and I will have links to his album and website at thebayshed.com backslash podcast backslash Joshua Stamper. All right, this Josh Joshua was uh, an amazing, amazing guest to have on the show, and really started to make me think about composition in a new way. And he talks about not only his process, but just how he conceives uh, of sound and in different terms. And it's really, really fascinating. And so here it is. I'm going to let you hear it all from Josh himself. Here's my chat with double bassist and composer Joshua Stamper. Joshua. Hi, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Cool. What part of what part of the country are you in? Uh, I'm just outside Philadelphia and just across the river in uh, New Jersey. So, okay. Yeah, okay. But for all intents and purposes, I'm in Philly. So. How long have you been out there? Uh, about, I think, coming up on 16 years. 16? Where were you at before that? Uh, up in Connecticut. Um, okay. Yeah, I went to school in Western Mass. And, uh, and uh, yeah, shortly after that, uh, yeah, ended up teaching at a, a private prep school in Connecticut and uh and was there for about nine years and then moved this way so what um what were you going to school for it was a double major of uh in music composition and playwriting okay yeah fascinating I haven't, I haven't written a play since college but, <laughs> <laughs> but I have written a lot of music I would yeah, love to yeah, get yeah. back to that at some point you know 
So. Uh, but how much of how much of the playwriting do you think informs the composition as far as story? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I certainly, I certainly think in terms of arcs and in terms of uh, yeah, sort of larger structure uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, words have always been really important to me. So you know whether that's lyric or essay or or whatever that's that's certainly something that that uh i i really value so yeah uh when when composing and when thinking of the entire arc how much of the the arc or the story of the composition do you let the music dictate or how much do you have in mind when you begin if you could guess, yeah. no one knows yeah. exactly. It's you can't qualify it, but do you sure. have a strong sense of vision of how this thing is going to go? As or do you just like there's an initial thought or phrase or musical idea, and then you let the music finish the story? Yeah, that's such a good question, and it, and I feel like it, it's different for for every piece. I, mm-hmm. I think I do really appreciate and. Um, Stravinsky's uh, Poetics on Music, a series of lectures uh, that was done, I think, at Yale way back in the 1920s. It's either Yale or Harvard. But he sort of talks about how whenever he starts to, when he sets out to write a new piece, he draws the parameters around that as sort of tightly and as specifically as he possibly can so that he basically has something to work against or work within and and he he says that if he doesn't do that he's just kind of paralyzed by this infinitude of possibility (laughs) which i appreciate um for sure but at the same time i uh i think there is something to be said for letting form emerge um and um so i yeah i think oftentimes when I'm writing, I, uh, it, it, it is, uh, a, a sort of a, you're holding those two things in tension. Mm-hmm. You know, I might start with some, some vague sense of where this might be going. Uh, and, uh, but, but holding that with an open hand, I think is important. Um, I do, I do experience, uh, music in spatial terms. I, my my brother is a filmmaker, but he was he was trained as a painter, and he had a painting uh, professor who had said that uh, painting is time, music is space, which is kind of odd. You would think it would be the opposite, you know? yeah. Uh, but but that's that certainly rings true for me. That all of my favorite music is it it feels very much like a like an environment, a space that mm-hmm. there's, you know, I'm, there's room to explore. There's room to, there's lots to see. There's lots to, there's room to walk around and run around yeah. and play. And, um, and then on the flip side, there's also music that, you know, where you experience a certain kind of, uh, claustrophobia, you know, where the, where <laughs> the walls are just a little too close. Yeah. To yeah, yeah that's true. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, all that to say, I, um, yeah, I, I think all of my favorite music and what certainly what I'm trying to do when I'm writing is 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 create 
space, you know, with, with actual dimensions, you know, there's up, down, front, back, left, right. So that's fascinating. Cause when listening, when listening to the record, it is very atmospheric. Mm. It's interesting. It's a fantastic record. Thank you. And because it's, it's atmospheric. And then it's, it's this room that you're invited into. And then it's also starting a very intelligent conversation within the room at the same time. So like it brings you in and then it's, you're not just in the room. It's going to engage you once you're in there also. Mm-hmm. And it was more than just like this kind of cinematic thing that has a lot of in- imagery. Like it was, it was really engaging. Um, so to hear you speak about thinking about music in dimensional proximities and things like that is fascinating because that was communicated for sure on the record. So glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a fascinating idea. I've never heard music uh, talked about in that sense. Mm -hmm. How do you know when you achieve it or when you're just composing? um, And maybe, maybe this is a conversation to have about process. But when you're composing, how can you know that that thing is being achieved until you hear it played back? Or once it's in the studio and you start doing layering, then it Mm -hmm. then it seems like it's you'll know if you're achieving it. But if you're just composing pen to paper, Mm -hmm. how do you know if the piece is working? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I I think it's um, I I think it again, sort of thinking about the spatial aspect of music i think for me it's it has a lot to do with does this does this space feel like do i do i have room to to move around do i have Mm -hmm. uh is it is it something that i could that i could spend time is it a space i could spend time exploring and if i if i start to feel um if i start to feel like there's a uh where where those walls are getting a little bit too close, then you know then then there might be things that I adjust uh, either to expand the walls or to uh, or to basically suggest that the time that you spend in this particular space is is just for a limited time. You know, it ushers you into a it's, yeah, it's yeah, a breezeway yeah. a breezeway into some other space, um, and uh, it's just this little kind of micro place that you inhabit for a little bit and then you move on um so sort of scaling uh maybe scaling time to um to uh you know the the sort of largeness of the space that feels like um, mm-hmm. it's being uh you know that you might want to spend spend there um but i also really love these little kind of spaces that you know these kind of micro uh like there's a couple pieces on the record that are really really short and uh and for me those still feel expansive but it's more like just kind of peeking in the window to see <laughs> what's in there yeah, yeah, yeah um so i don't know if that answers your question but it's uh <laughs> yeah, it's hard it's, sometimes it's hard to talk about these things they're, sure they're sure so abstract. yeah because it's so much of a an emotional response to it you know and yeah it's hard to qualify what what that thing is or who who have been some composers or artists that have that you go to for inspiration to to maybe check out how they're doing it to to learn some techniques or 
ideas about how to investigate this in your own artistry? Yeah. So I, I started really, really getting interested in composing when I was in high school. Um, and I, we had the really, really good fortune of having a, a music teacher who he, he he really took students seriously and what they were capable of and what they could appreciate and what they might respond to. And so there was, he was always giving us the real literature. We weren't getting like dumbed down uh, Bob Dylan medleys or, or, you know, Phantom of the Opera scores or something like that. We were dealing with, and he was, yeah, I was in the chamber singers for a while and we were singing things like Palestrina and, Beethoven's Mass in C and Mendelssohn Motets. And we even ended up singing some Schoenberg, you know, and, and Brahms Requiem. And I mean, all this really heavy literature. Yeah. And so, and being in the midst of that and feeling all of these lines intertwining, it was like, I don't know what this is, but I, I really need to figure it out. And, and that sort of alongside, you know, just, just this growing love for, for jazz and for, for R&B and for Prince and, you know, stuff like that, yeah. where I was experiencing those kind of same kinds of spaces really opening up. And, and so in terms of uh, really influential composers and musicians, like, you know, and this is related to this, the earlier discussion about space, I feel so much affinity for uh, early 20th century classical music uh stravinsky bartok before before it got really atonal like those things still had kind of a a tonality yeah yeah it. it was it was certainly pushing at the at yeah. the boundaries of it for sure but uh, but yeah really uh there was just sort of a visceral quality to it that i was really smitten by and uh and i've uh, you know i've i've certainly i do appreciate you know the atonal stuff for sure i i've recently really really gotten into um a polish composer named Witold litoslavski um just unbelievable composer and orchestration or orchestrator in any case so so those guys rebel wc of course um and then alongside that uh people like i mean the second uh miles quintet just mm -hmm. i could listen to that band forever Right. Um, the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but I, I think I'm a pretty uh, kind of omnivorous listener. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. On that topic, what are you listening to right now? Like, what's the what's the a record or an artist you've been checking out lately? Yeah. So, well, like I said, Ludoslavsky, um, yeah. uh, but also. I just picked up uh, this record that I've been looking for for years um, and it happened upon it. Uh, it's a record that's just called Jobim, um, but it's it's Jobim with all of these orchestrations by Klaus Ogerman, I think is how you say it. Um, but it, this just fantastic and really kind of surprising uh, pieces. Uh, I think he might have written some of them for film. I don't know which films, but it does kind of have some of that quality of of that kind of early Stravinsky stuff at points and that paired with the sort of humility and and uh immediacy of of uh Jobim's 
voice is yeah. it's really really striking so so there's that and then uh just picked up a new kenny wheeler record that is oh, nice amazing it's kenny yeah. wheeler and keith jarrett jack dijanet and um dave holland KP. oh dave holland oh, new, oh. new, new high is the record new high I don't, I, don't, I don't think i have that um, one. Oh man kenny wheeler is one of my favorites and uh yeah in terms of other favorite trumpet players i think Wadada leo smith is uh uh, just outrageous there's there's so much information contained within one note it's really yeah, yeah, yeah. really beautiful um so at what yeah. point have you had formal jazz studies ish I, well <laughs> may, may, maybe not actually i mean i i i had always loved jazz but when i graduated from college shortly after i was i was hired to teach jazz at this private prep school and um so that that gave me an excuse to to really dive in and and it was a lot of self-study and um yeah just transcribing charlie parker solos and and uh you know writing arrangements for students and and uh yeah it was it was a great it was a great uh yeah there's there's no uh there's there's nothing like having to teach something to yeah. <laughs> to make you learn it um so that's the truth that's the yeah truth. yeah so that and then and then out of that i started you know forming my own ensembles really just as kind of really kind of composition laboratories and um yeah is there a a live performance outlet for these groups or do they stay as recording projects for this particular ensemble, Color is Time, it has been a challenge. We we had we yes, there is a performing aspect to it, but it's it's a challenging thing because everybody because everybody is so good, they're yeah. really in demand. So getting everybody in the same room is is uh, is a task, and uh, all the more so because now it the ensemble spans three states and two continents, and so. Oh, wow. uh, but we do have a release uh, show scheduled in December. Uh, okay, where everybody's going to be this brief two two day window. We're going to be able to, you know, do a rehearsal and then and then perform it. So is that going to be, be in really the fun. in the Philadelphia area? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Is that where you originally connected with all the musicians? Was through Philly? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah for and sure. And they're touring yeah, we, now, or they just live somewhere else? Uh both. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah that makes um, it rough yeah <laughs> yeah one of my uh my drummers i don't know he's somewhere in the yeah, he lives in philly but he's somewhere i don't know somewhere in the country and then and then my woodwind player is in korea right now and and uh one of my piano players in, is in prague and yeah it's just so they're all over the place but um but yeah, it's it's uh. But we met, you know, doing different projects in different configurations in Philly for years, and uh, yeah, and it's a it's a really special ensemble. I think, uh, you know, I think different types of music uh, really have different kind of rhythmic vernaculars, and mm -hmm. and so it, it takes time to really understand. It's to maybe to become bi or trilingual you know in in different genres in terms of the way that rhythm is understood and and um which you know there are some early attempts to synthesize classical and jazz that that really kind of like, now feel very they either fall really flat or they sound hokey and i think a lot of that has to do with that 
issue of rhythmic vernacular. Um, but I think that's also true of individuals um, that every single person has their their own kind of way of conceiving of of rhythm and and mm-hmm. um, and uh, time and harmony and you know there are these sort of very specific and particular uh, particularities um, or sensibilities rather and um, and so when you have a group of musicians that have been playing together for a long long time um, that there's a there's a I think a shared language that ends up being developed and and uh, that that's certainly how this ensemble feels to me yeah. I was going to ask about that because getting into a project that is coming from so many different places and as a composer, do you think about how much vocabulary to use from each kind of style? I doubt it's that black and white or cut and dry when you're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's coming from all these different places. And what you were talking about is the rhythmic vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you approach that as a composer? Because to really sell the idea of something, you got to do that rhythmic vocabulary thing or that harmonic vocabulary thing. But when it's so, when it's coming from so many different places, how do you acknowledge a genre or style and not fully commit to a vocabulary? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't think about that at all. Okay. Um, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's just being so steeped in, in all of this different music and it sort of just comes out filters through (laughs) through a single person. And then, and then, um, you know, and so, so that, that sort of vernacular is, is referenced, but it's not, it's not a kind of explicit referencing. It's, it's more, it's, it's been internalized and, and, um, and the execution of the music, I think, really requires an understanding of different these different kind of rhythmic and harmonic sensibilities. But um, it's also a lot of it um, is is kind of high risk uh, music in terms of you know where you have composite rhythms or 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 like it's very you know they're some of it's very 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 tightly composed and and there are grooves to be had but they're hard won you know and uh and and so i think you know committing to that work together is uh has been also a big part of things mm-hmm. so you play double bass on the album and you also play guitar what was the first instrument for you as a person was it piano or something that you were composing on first before those two do you mean for this project specifically or no just for general? just you in your career in your musical journey. yeah yeah so my first instrument was actually double bass but oh I, really I, I didn't know how to play it at all i mean i, <laughs> I, I got it in in uh, you know with the fifth grade kind sure. of elementary uh string program and and you know i think i had learned how to play the theme from uh darth vader um and uh every time we would have to uh uh play a school concert i I, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was just look busy. Was, yeah, yeah. Was kind of <laughs> <laughs> look busy. I like that. Yeah. Right? The yeah. thing I'm playing if I just look <laughs> busy and frustrated. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, and then, uh, so I stopped that. And then in eighth grade, uh, ended up starting guitar lessons. And and that that re- is where I think my a lot of my musical interest was really kind of... Uh, catalyzed and then um 
and then yeah and then i actually didn't uh come back to double bass until i was teaching at that private high school we had gotten a donation and uh with the chair of the music department used the donation to buy a double bass Mm -hmm. and i was teaching these jazz groups and none of the students were interested in playing but i was like well it's here you know as well you know try to start learning how to play this thing and 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 then i started getting hired to play sessions and i was Mm. like oh man now i need to really learn how to play this thing (laughs) so so yeah i mean it's the the learning is certainly never ending and um yeah it's it's when I think about the bass players that I really love, I, I you know, I, I'm not a bass player, bass player, if that makes any sense. Sure, you know, sure, I, right. I, it's, I, yeah. yeah, I, I do I perform on it and, um, and, uh, I'm hired to do sessions for sure. And, and, it, but yeah, I mean, when I think about, you know, some of my heroes, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's another thing entirely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the the heroes keep everybody <laughs> you know, like you're never ever gonna get it you know like who who, know. Are, who are your specific heroes or some uh, of them at least yeah sure um well i love of course charlie hayden um and yeah just his sound is extraordinary mm-hmm. larry grenadier i really love uh scott collie yeah uh ron carter andrew storman um uh, just beautiful i love red mitchell's sound mm. um yeah just just a huge sound um but there's this kind of detail to it that's really so beautiful gary yeah. peacock yeah so those are some of them what are you are you working on another project now like this record just came out when was the actual release date uh last monday October oh last 10th. monday congratulations yeah. that was yeah, uh... hot off the presses yeah yeah, your PR team had, I forgot when they emailed me. It was maybe a month and a half ago or something. Cool. And it took me a while. It took me a while to I could listen to the album before I committed to it or not. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they get these emails like, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And then I'll check out the record. Like, there's nothing intriguing about this. I don't know if I have anything <laughs> to talk about. Right, right. So I don't do it. I always have to listen to the record first. So how does it feel to have it out out into the world? Does it just feel like the weight is lifted off, or does it feel like, well, now step two, I gotta kind of you know get word out on this? And yeah, I mean, there's always that, um, yeah, that sort of uh, promotion time that that is certainly my. I mean, interviews like this are helpful, you know, because they sure they are actual conversations, but um, uh, which feels a little bit more meaningful. But um, yeah, with you know it's this the this whole kind of period is is my least favorite part of the process um, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> just, right. just yeah because it's it yeah it, i don't know it, i've seen i've seen i mean i think there's always a threat to a, a special project the the sort of joy being you know seeping out of it because uh, the whole promotion machine is um yeah i, I think that you know it's often is the introduction of a whole bunch of foreign metrics about where the value in your music is actually situated and yeah because it it turns the artistic endeavor into commerce and that 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 process it can mess with your head yeah okay that that, that's a way of saying it yeah i was trying to think of something 
Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Well, especially how long did the album take you? And well, let's mm-hmm. let's start with the the material as well, from beginning to end. The pieces that are on here, there is I have it pulled up right here. There's 15 uh, tracks on the album. Mm-hmm. How long have some of these been in the process of being written? Like, have you had some sitting around for years, and then finally they found a place, or were these written for the album? Yeah, so this, uh, these pieces, I think, were written over the course of a year, okay, year and change, and it sort of workshopped in rehearsal and in performance, and then, um, uh. Yeah, and so we we did the initial recording session in 2019, actually, in, okay. in the summer of 2019. And the the initial recording session was a disaster. It was it was uh, just every technical difficulty that could have happened happened. And so record actually wasn't. We didn't actually press record until about five hours after we were supposed to. Oh, wow. um, and so it's sort of like you have. Where's everybody's mood like then? Because you got well, a bunch yeah. of studio guys, and it's five hours later. It's like, dude, I'm hungry. I got a gig tonight. Like, mm-hmm. what are we doing here? Yeah. Well, it's it was really kind of like uh, you have a bunch of elite athletes waiting yeah. for the you know poised and waiting for the gun to go off. And, um, and, but, but holding, you can only hold that pose for so long, you know, sure. you know ready to go right. before you just become exhausted. And so, so yeah, by the time, by the time we actually, uh, hit record, it was, everybody was spent. Um, yeah. so, you know, the session was, <laughs> it was a very depressing session in that, I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't represent the music well it didn't represent the players well and um so I ended up listening through everything and uh you know the the idea was well we get everybody in the same room again and we and we just try to figure it out but again everybody is just so so busy that that yeah. was that was impossible and so then the idea of overdubbing kind of uh started exploring that and and thankfully uh, when i listened through everything the drums were all solid and okay. um, and really really good performances and the double basses were solid and some guitars and some keys um, but everything else needed to be redone so there was some things that were salvageable and so we we kind of retract um over that time but then I actually ended up getting really excited because I decided to take all of that unusable material, the the basically the stuff that was, uh, yeah, trash from that session, yeah, and took it and chopped it all up and 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 created new compositions out of that. So all that materials, it might feature a horn from this song and a trombone from that song and drums from a different song and and some of that. You know, I pitch shifted or ran backwards or, you know, just kind of really played with it. And yeah. and it was really, really fun. And, and you know, I uh, ended up taking, um, bringing in a, a, a nylon string guitar and kind of started adding nylon string guitar to these new collage compositions that I was making. And um and I really like that contrast between the the sort of humility and the immediacy of of this, you know, uh, of this uh, nylon string texture 
paired with this stuff that's clearly super processed and chopped up. And I think that contrast is, it was really compelling to me. So, so yeah, those ended up being these little kind of vignettes that are peppered through, yeah, through the, through the album. And um, yeah, or you get these little kind of uh, sort of micro excursions into, into a kind of a parallel sonic universe. So that, that was exciting actually. So what, what it's <laughs> just like, you know, I think so much of the time, the task of the artist is to make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> right. um, so that's, uh, that's what we did. And yeah. So that, that, that stuff was composed specifically for the record. Okay. But uh, everything else had been composed beforehand. When picking some of the instrumentation on this record, I liked how you just spoke about it with humility and immediacy. Do you, when you're listening back, do you feel like, hmm, everything's cool, but this tune needs more immediacy or this needs more humility or this needs humor or this needs, is that how you think of it before you associate an instrument to that sound? Do you think about the almost human characteristic of it first? Well, I think if I do think about those things it's more i'm thinking about the specific players okay um and and their own kind of qualities as human beings okay so not the not the nature of the sound of an instrument because i mean I yeah remember, well that, uh, that i think it was track 10 all of a sudden there's accordion and that that completely caught me oh, right. off guard i'm like oh <laughs> yeah. okay we're doing that now what's up everybody okay <laughs> right right let's yeah, go yeah. yep Exactly. Strap yourself in. Yeah. You're get wild. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. No, the, um, I mean, of course, I mean, the, each, each person's personality, it, it filters through their instrument and, yeah, absolutely. It, and, I, and it does affect their sound for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the reasons the the things I love about this group is, is that, I mean, these are, these are dear, dear friends and, and there is this kind of shared uh love for uh, uh well a shared sense of play and there's kind of a wry humor that often kind of comes through in people's playing and and but not in a jokey way um right and uh but and as well as a real shared um uh love of space um and uh so anyway um all that to say that again you know in terms of those particular qualities that you were asking about and and, and thinking about sound i i do think about sound as i'm writing but it's it's but again it's sound attached to individuals so you're thinking about the the performer before the instrument yeah, yeah, I okay. think so. Sort of in the same way. I mean, not that I'm comparing myself to Duke Ellington, but the way that he would write specifically sure. for, you know, you know, like when he would write a trombone part, he wasn't writing a trombone part. He was writing a part for Juan Tizal, you know, yeah. um, that kind of idea. Yeah, with yeah. or or you know, yeah, that there's very very kind of particular ways that they approach. Um, you know, approach phrasing or, or the, there's particular particularities to their sound mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that you kind of have in mind as you're writing. Yeah. How do some of those, um, 
those elements that you would go back in and, and chop up and add to the record that were done after the fact, how do you communicate those live? Do you have tracks that are triggered? Do you have synth players that are duplicating the parts? Do you just leave it up as like something goes there, but it doesn't have to be that part specifically? Yeah, no, those, uh, those, um, I don't think that we will do those live. <laughs> okay. Because just... I think those are studio creations. And, yeah. And um, I mean, we get to similar kinds of spaces in, in kind of, you know, uh, when we're playing live, we, we, we certainly stretch things and, and sure. access a similar kind of space as those interludes just in an improvisational context. Um, so when composing, how much room to do you leave for the improviser? That's a good question. Um, that's that's actually been a question that I've been wrestling with for uh, probably fifteen to twenty years. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know how do you, and it has to do with this creating a, a synthesis between improvised music and composed music that that feels really authentic and really genuine and. And um, I think that, uh, I mean, there's plenty of music that is great that's like highly composed. And then there's the the section where everybody takes solos and then mm-hmm. we come back to the highly composed stuff. And that, but that, that always feels a little bit unsatisfying to me, at least in my own work. I, I, I really want there to be where the information, improvisation to grow out of something or mm-hmm. there's or it feels like it's um it's contributing to structure that it that's emerging so i i guess I'm sure that's very vague and and uh no i to, think that makes sense actually like to talk to just to speak to just that i mean i remember a recording project i did it was a long time ago 20 2010 2012 um but yeah it's it's something i've always been wrestling with too is where mm-hmm. where the imp- composition and improvisation meet yeah as or far how that relationship the, works yeah. yeah as far as the material mm-hmm. so that you're not just showing up with a lead sheet yeah yeah because that that model gets tiring to listen to mm-hmm. uh too much back in the you know back to back to back um so i've been wrestling with it and you know i wrote one piece that we would just play and the only objective was eventually make it to the melody and it was over (laughs) and however we got there we got there but like sure you know the first chord is like what i forgot what it was i think it was a b flat minor nine or something like make it to the b flat minor nine and then let's start the melody and then once that's the end, that's the end. Like this tune that's is about great. the process to get there. Yeah. Sort of like that uh, countdown structure where uh, it starts with the solo and then, you know, yeah. and ends with the melody. Um, although what you're describing is more free than that. But um, yeah, no, I, I do. I think that that's, I've been super, super intrigued with uh, Anthony Braxton and, and have done a bunch of reading about how, how he answers those questions. And and this is actually, it's a very question is one of the things that I'm really, uh, I, I think that I find so 
exciting about Ludislavsky's music is that as a classical composer, he's he's really trying to deal with those same kinds of questions. And so there are these in his later work, he was really um you know, he would have these sections where he would enable different groups within the orchestra. You know, he would write out melodies, you know, that, that you know, I mean, the, the pitches and the rhythms are fixed, but they could be played at different tempos at the same mm. time, or they could be, um, you know, they, it, he was still kind of authoring the thing, but but really, really giving the player latitude to interpret the way that that they've they've felt it but but you know he would do that to you know give that latitude to an entire string section for example um or or soloists within a with, with within a wind section so you mm-hmm. hear these melodies that i don't know they end up kind of sounding like a flock of birds or something it's really fascinating and right right because so you're those, just getting these little these pockets of activity you know like if you're taking a yeah if you're looking down from above the clouds on a storm how you can kind of see these little synapses exactly. firing off yeah no that's a great that's a great uh illustration it, it really does um yeah it's just it's just beautiful and it, it, it yeah it's it's much more about texture mm-hmm. and um these sort of this sort of gossamer glycerin you know glistening um uh, texture that ends up being created, and so, so, kind of approaches like that feel really compelling to me because it's not, it's not improvisation composition. You know, as two different things, they're they're the synthesis is much more organic, and and sure. uh, that's that's super compelling to me, and something that I'm always I think you know endeavoring to push more and more into. Yeah, and yeah, so. Yeah, I was talking to a guitar player, I don't know, not that long ago. And um, <laughs> I forgot what we were talking about. But we ended up talking about that idea. And mm-hmm. both of us decided on the fact that our writing sucks. Because <laughs> if we write something that we like to listen to, it's not fun to play over, you know, to right. solo over. <laughs> right. or, but then, like, things that are fun to solo over aren't interesting to... So we both realized that we suck. but. Uh, it's an ongoing thing to find something that's engaging uh, that I want to play over as a soloist, sure. but also like a piece of music that I would just want to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah, this yeah. never-ending battle. Um, yeah. On your recording, there's some other elements like that that are kind of not counter-elements that you're using to work together, but you're like sometimes a lot of quick transitions and almost drone-like repetitions. Those two you have kind of working uh, in a close relationship uh, on the record. How do you how do you think about that? Because I think that idea is very similar to putting two different things together, just like composition and improvisation, dealing with uh, elements of change, but also elements of static mm-hmm. in a repetition. So how do you how do you go about working that relationship? Yeah, well, I think that you, I, I think that you can't actually. Well, I, I think about the um, the landscape artist Andy Goldsworthy, and and just phenomenal work, and and all of his work is is sort of using uh, 
he's a visual artist, but, but you know, sculptor, but he's, he uses time as a, as a material. And he's, a lot of his work is in, you know, working outside and, you know, using natural materials and it's, it's just extraordinary work, but he, he talks about the best, well, really the only way to, to observe change is to stay in one place. Um, and uh, so I, I think that's, that, that, I like that. I've never yeah, thought about that, but that's really brilliant actually. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that, so I think that you can't really, I think you have to have that contrast of, of something that is a static element uh, for to, context. To really, yeah. To, yeah. cause otherwise it's, it, there's nothing you don't have in, you don't, that's the thing that provides your bearings so that you can actually see what's changing, what's what's right. morphing. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's, I think that, I do think that contrast is a tool that, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's very present in, in the way that I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, the way that that contrast is leveraged and sometimes it's, you know, things get hazy and sometimes things are stark, but there's always, uh, but that contrast has to be there in some, some way. I, I think, I mean, you know, th- even just thinking about the basics of syncopation, unless, I mean, syncopation requires just a rock solid sense of the internal beat. Otherwise it's sort of like trying to dribble a basketball in a muddy field. It's, right, <laughs> it's, right, it's yeah, going to be pretty yeah. unsatisfying. Um, and yeah, so I think having something hard to, to bounce off of, um, you know, whether you're talking rhythmically or harmonically or whatever, I think it's really, really critical. Right. Right. That's fascinating because I've never thought about it in quite those terms. Uh, but I like, I like all that. And then how, what is, what is your approach like to form and investigating, uh, newness within form or forms that you're exploring? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think it gets back to that that question of uh, experiencing music spatially, um, mm-hmm. and does this feel like a a space that that keeps revealing itself? And and you know, so often that um, that's yeah, that's that's something that is it's an ongoing question. You know, as I'm writing, you know, is is does, is this a uh, do I, do I feel like there's more to explore even after a piece is done? And that's that, that, that to me, I think is, is when, when I've hit on something is, is mm. after I've hit the last or written the last note, if it feels like there's more to explore, um, as I'm listening, um, that's, that's usually a really, really good sign. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, in terms of form, I think part of, part of that, has to do with the uh i feel like you're always in dialogue with the kind of tensile strength of an idea and um you know if you that it's important to kind of that 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 i mean if you stretch it too far of course it snaps or it loses all its elasticity Mm -hmm. and um and so that's something that i am really really aware of when i'm writing uh in terms of structure in terms of the form, you know, does this, does does that tension feel like it's still present um, Mm. or does it feel like it's losing its elasticity? Um, Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. When you, what you just said about 
once you've written the last note and there's still something left. That's exactly how I felt as soon as the album ended. <laughs> I'm so like, glad you're that. Like it wasn't not that that wasn't complete, mm-hmm. but it wasn't this strong sense of resolution. Mm-hmm. It was like okay. Like I, I had to just kind of sit there for a second. I was processing so much of what I just heard, but it wasn't over. So mentally, I went back and replayed the things that I was hearing because I was it's like trying to keep the party going. Uh, it was <laughs> that's a high compliment. I'm glad. Yeah, that. that's, yeah, that's so. It's interesting that that's you're aware of that within your writing because that's um, it's exactly how I felt once once the album ended, uh, which I thought was that's great. great. Which great. Yeah. It left me it left me in a very specific place. What is the relevance of the titles as it relates to the piece of music itself? Hmm. Yeah, I mean some of it is is just uh some guys just have words that are placeholders so that they know <laughs> yeah. you know what <laughs> how to reference a chart when they're telling guys to pull up a tune. Oh, um, for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that for me, it, 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 it has to connect with not so much in terms of what the words, sometimes in terms of what the words in the title themselves actually mean, but, but sometimes it's just that even the sound of the words feels consistent with the, the music and, and, you know, sort of like James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake or Ulysses, you know, that, that, that so much of what those, those, uh, really 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 difficult books i think ultimately are about is just the sound of language and the sound of words and so 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 yeah there is the this this you know for me that's a that's kind of a playful place to um explore things and um or maybe an extension of that that process of, of, of and and really yeah bringing in play you know and and uh yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. Yeah, and it, yeah. it reminded me of, uh, I think, something. It was an interview I read one time with Tom York from, from Radiohead. Right. She's just like, I'm not always interested in the meaning of words. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. it just has to do with sound. Yeah, for sure. For Which sure. made Radiohead <laughs> make way more sense. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. That's sure. fair. That's fair. Because I was trying to piece these definitions together and I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, so that was that was interesting to me. And there's some other other singers I feel like that um might utilize that idea although i haven't heard them speak to it directly but there's some early fiona apple that i could mm-hmm. probably think of where she utilized that technique with going for words for sound yeah maybe yeah. over over function right right yeah which is which is really interesting and so you were speaking at the beginning the words and speech have always been very important to you is this something you're interested in investigating to bring that more into the music, have a narration or or poem or verse. Sure, yeah, no, I've definitely written uh, pieces that involve spoken word um, or utilized voice or sound in a or the sound of voice in a really important way. I mean, I have you know a couple albums with with song songs, uh-huh. um, but you know lyrics and stuff. But there there was a piece I 
I was commissioned to write a, in 2017 by this extraordinary uh, chamber choir called The Crossing. And and for that piece, uh, the well, the, the libretto was written. So the piece was basically, it was the second chapter of this four-part series that I've been working on called Elements. And it's sort of looking at the four classical elements, water, air, fire, and earth, and how those are manifest specifically in Philadelphia history and culture. And so for this second chapter, it was all about air or wind. And uh, there's nothing really that singular about wind in Philadelphia. It's not like, it's not known for its wind. It's not like Chicago or something (laughs) like that. But um, so, so then the idea kind of came, what if actually, what if I took, what if I gathered, texts that had been picked up carried and deposited by by the wind in philadelphia Mm. and sort of harvested all that text and then um that would become the word bank that i would then use to create the libretto and that's so that's what i did i had these sort of six journeys into the city that i i went around and just took tons and tons of pictures of basically trash and then got home and transcribed all that and then um yeah, and then wrote the libretto from there. But in in answer to your question, you know, the way that voice is used there and sound, the sound of the human voice, you know, there are parts where people are speaking or whispering or whistling or um, as well as singing, of course. And um, so, so yeah, it, there's there's just so the human voice is a remarkable, remarkable instrument. Um, and uh, I think kind of underexplored in terms of, uh, yeah, what 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 can, what it can do, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So I, I all that to say, I really really love kind of pressing into that kind of thing. Um, but I am really really fascinated with uh, texts that are that are also in dialogue with one another. And yeah. So in any case, the. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but um, no, no, but that's good. That means you're on to something that you're pursuing and it's been a journey for you. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's great. This, when you were going and doing these little excursions around Philadelphia and you're finding the words that were blown by the wind, I think that's a fascinating way to connect with the element. Mm-hmm. Um, when put together, and you pull from all these different pieces of trash, did you create a narrative out of it or did you keep it pretty uh, eclectic or eccentric? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. So the, what I did was, so each movement is basically a different journey into a different part of Philadelphia. Um, so each movement has its own word bank, uh, okay. you know, collection of uh, uh, yeah. Texts that were harvested, but then I in terms of words being in dialogue with each other. So I took, uh, I used a, a poetic form that was pioneered by John Cage. It's called a mesostic. Uh, and basically the way it's, it's the same thing as an acrostic, except that rather than the vertical word being on the left side of the page, it's actually, it's or left side of the poem. It's actually in the middle. So it, it, it sort of goes through like a spine and there are kind of rules that dictate what words are allowed on either side of each middle letter. 
that's going down. And um, so it's kind of a, it's a very simple, but a very strict form. And so, so that for those spine texts, I was using little tiny passages from the, the Bible about, about wind or air. And um, why the Bible was, specifically? Well, I think it's it, because it's a fixed text. Um, mm-hmm. And so this fixed text in, in, in relationship with texts that are literally disposable, sure. transitory, ephemeral. And so that sort of. So that's that your relation- constant, just like we were talking about a second ago, like that's the constant for everything to pivot around. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so this, this kind of, uh, this spine text ends up becoming this kind of invisible kind of DNA helix that the entire rest of the libretto is organized around. And there's no way that listening, you would be able to discern what that spine text is. You would have to actually look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has absolute uh, uh, governing, yeah, governing yeah. authority, you know? And so, so yeah, that, those kinds of uh, relationships are really, really interesting to me. And the, the piece that I'm working on now is, is a piece for string quartet and percussion sextet. And this is the third chapter in that series. This one's about fire. And the uh, the this is also another, I guess, uh, this on part of my ongoing fascination with things that are emerging or in dialogue. And so this this piece is um, the c- conceit with the the score is basically it's it doesn't operate like a normal score. It it's what I'm doing is writing a hyperlinked score. So each musician is reading their music off of tablets, and on each page of each person's music, there are these collections of hyperlinks. That so, for example, the cellist is reading along; they get to measure fourteen, and they'll encounter a collection of four or five different links, each link connecting to a different part in the score. And so, where whatever link they choose, it shoots them to that place. So choose your own score. adventure book. Yeah, 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 it's it's a choose your own adventure musical methodology. Yeah, <laughs> and so all ten musicians end up kind of creating these ten independent paths through the master score, and it is uh, every time it's performed, it's a completely new, unique piece. You know, because they're all taking different routes each time. And um, so, what yeah. would this be? Let's say we got there's ten musicians; they all get to measure fourteen. Now, do they are they all making decisions at the same measure, or is cello one making a decision at measure fourteen? But you know, I'm not sure of the exact instrumentation. But you know, bass clarinet made the decision already at at measure nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, no, so it's, it's always very disconnected in mm-hmm. when they make the decisions. Yeah, it's it's more the latter where okay. they because the the linking choices are are determined according to phrase lengths and or for, for, sorry phrase endings phrase beginnings. Okay, um, and so where they where the link actually becomes a possibility, it's often like at the end of a phrase, or, um, and it's linking to somewhere else in the score that's the beginning of a different phrase, and. So yeah, that that's sort of in that in this kind of with this conceit questions of you know form is 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 emergent and and um and it's a the whole kind of idea is about is about potential um you know whatever route any musician takes it was always a route there to be taken but but 
you know, in this, so I wrote one movement as a, as a proof of concept in it. And, you know, the audience would only ever experience that movement as being about four minutes long, but it basically has, you know, eight score layers or, you know, sort of late. Yeah. Well, that's what I've been calling them stacks of score on top of each other that, you know, possible routes, on. like possible ways it could end. Well, it's journeys um, it could go on. Yeah, the way that it's structured is um, so within this uh, this uh, proof of concept, there are seven hundred and sixty seven links um, total, and you had I had eight different uh, layers of score, which are basically just discrete pieces stacked on top of each other. So, so back to that idea of the cellist, they get to measure fourteen and they choose a link. They start on layer three and then and then they choose a link it shoots them to layer one then I see. another link it shoots them down to layer seven etc yeah. and so they're all kind of doing this and it creates this kind of web or maybe it looks like a like a new york city subway map you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah but each but basically each movement is is hooked to a different narrative in philadelphia history having to do with fire and uh there's all these really remarkable stories in Philadelphia with fire as both a constructive force, but a destructive fact. And so that, I think that's one of the things that, you know, again, speaking about relationships that I'm really compelled by with this whole series is, is the ways in which each of these elements are connected or either, well, at the same time, absolutely critical to human flourishing uh but also represents some kind of severe uh liability to human uh thriving and so sure so that juxtaposition is 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 super super interesting to me um so i mean i think that can almost be said for i mean i don't there's not enough time to literally think about everything before i say this but <laughs> if, if if you take an idea such as fire or yes. or a human quality like someone being impulsive mm-hmm. I, I it's it's almost like everything is on its own micro pendulum and like to one point absolutely you know you you're excelling but then there's going to be the equal opposite reaction right it always goes back to Newton's law mm-hmm. um at which which case to ever whatever degree it was positive to the same degree it could potentially be negative and probably at some point will for sure you know and i think everything elements within the world all elements you know work like that like we need rain to grow agriculture but then you can have traumatic storms as well you know so it's both absolutely necessary and and then can clean out some things and be destructive for sure. I mean, and even 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 the notion of a hyperlink, you know, our 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 entire lives are are sort of centered around the internet, you know. For, yeah. You know, and 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 there's an amazing possibility that that is is in front of us by virtue of the internet, mm-hmm. but but also, I mean, it, you don't have to, you know, you go to any front page of any of any news website and you just see the the sort of catastrophic events with how we are how the the, the internet is is leveraged yeah. to um yeah rip societies apart 
So yeah, so it's just a fascinating, fascinating uh, thing, and and really I think kind of presses on these questions of uh, the ways in which not just what do we do with the tools that we have, but how are we shaped by the tools that we use, and uh, those are really I think pretty pressing questions to be to be thinking through together. So yeah, and and the relationship of are the tools shaping us or are we shaping with the tools? Mm-hmm. I think is always, uh, I was just ranting about this the other night, <laughs> much, much different context. Right. Um, but you know, I, f- I forgot how we got to, on this part of the conversation, but when, when my TV will ask me like, are you still watching this? Because whatever I left the TV on or whatever. Sure. And I was ranting about at what point did it happen where I now have to answer to my TV? <laughs> like I thought this is I think this is ludicrous that I have to respond to this and I have to engage with my television and be accountable to what it's asking me. Uh, right, right, right. Uh and so that led us that led us down the rabbit hole of at what point we're working for the tools and the tools were working for us. Right. Um, right. you know, that and that relationship. And it's fascinating to me that you and within your artistry, you're digging into all these. They're not micro relationships, but they're nuanced relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're really taking the time to investigate all those. And I think that's that's really fascinating because when you just accept them and don't look into them, you can easily end up in a place where you missed a lot. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's I, I, I'm either yeah onto something or this is just uh me working out my neuroses um, <laughs> that's, all, that's all we're all doing <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's all this is that's all this is right how did that how did you kind of stumble across that uh hyperlink concept you know i don't i don't know i i i had i had done this fellowship in 2019 at this really wonderful artist residency called McDowell. And um, actually where I, I first sort of started working on this, this piece uh, about fire. And um, I mean, I was just doing just lots and lots and lots of research and lots of just sketching. And, but I, but even back then I was like, what, you know, I I was just sort of thinking about the way that jazz often works and that, you know, you have, you know, you have these, you know, you have the head and then everybody's, you know, blows over the changes. And, and just thinking about the fact that, um, that, uh, those changes represent, I mean, there's just a million possibilities in terms of how those could be, uh, interacted with. And, and which is, which is why we have millions and millions of jazz recordings of the same song. Um, and because yeah it's kind of endless but thinking about like what would there be ways to kind of leverage that that uh kind of infinitude of possibilities in a uh in a in a compositional framework and uh so that was kind of just in the back of my mind way back way back then and and uh i don't know maybe it was i started using this note taking app called uh obsidian which allows you in as you're taking notes to create these little links to other notes that you've made and mm. and i mean it's a really really great tool and and i was i think i was just bopping along and that's probably where the idea came I was like wait a minute what if what if i could sort of take this idea and somehow work it 
uh, work with it musically. It's a great way to kind of go back to the previous topic to engage with composition and improvisation because the choices that they're making, although predisposed, it's an improvised moment of artistic, you know, expression or decision. Yeah. Yeah. You're seeding authorship to, yeah. To the musician. Yeah. Right. Well put. Even though, even though you, you were the one that made the choices available. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. What, what, what did that feel like? Did that just feel like some, all seeing eye God figure when you're composing this, like I know where you're going and you don't at measure 14 cello player. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, hardly. I think because I mean, there's even, even with something with a finite number of links, like 767 links, it it really is. I mean, it's just thousands and thousands and thousands of combinations um, Mm -hmm. that those links represent and um and there's no way to run all those combinations and this is just one movement of what will be a 10 movement piece wow and um so so yeah there's certainly no no uh pretension to um uh any sort of how do you know that they all work together like is it always Mm -hmm. so like going back to the same example of cello player picks this route in measure 14 do all of those choices end up as a voice within the same chord? Or is that how you can understand that they work because you can't necessarily check them all? Yes. I mean, it's, well, it's, that's part of it. I mean, I think that part of the, part of what you're doing in this kind of way of writing is that you're trying to create, well, really, I mean, back to that idea of space, you're trying to create a musical environment in which, you know, it sort of maximizes the possibility of, of, of uh, musical uh, coherence. And, and, but again, still, you know, not dictating exactly what's going to happen, I think is, it's an interesting tension to me. And, and so, I mean, I think that part of I, I think jazz was really, really helpful in, in, in my study of it in, in terms of realizing just how supple harmony actually is, that it's mm-hmm. a very, very flexible thing, you know, and, and uh, there are, um, you know, I think about the ways that, again, I'm back to that idea of, of, um, of just the, the usual form of a jazz tune you know where you have the the set of changes but but you know that that set of changes it's it represents a route but but there's all kinds of maybe maybe a better way to think of it is it's more like you're looking at a field with some hills and some trees and that there's all kinds of you can go around the hill or over the hill or around the trees or up the trees or mm-hmm. you know that there's all kinds of different ways of engaging with that kind of harmonic landscape Sure. And um, yeah, so I think maybe that's um, that's part of uh, j- yeah, just having worked with with uh, jazz in that way for so long. Um, that that's probably what gave me the. It felt like this was a, a viable uh, approach, and um, yeah, and but I think you know back to that the question of form. You know, really, it, that's something I'm thinking through a lot now about how to do this in a way that it doesn't sound like just a big, giant, hour and a half long wind chime. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, like you said, I mean, like, yeah, if you, if, if you're, if you are, if everything is basically just a chord and, and you're just creating these melodies and so that, that are consonant with that chord, well, that's certainly an approach, but, but an hour and a half of that could get a bit tiresome. And, and I think that back to Ludoslavsky, that's one thing that I've been really compelled by with his work is how he's able to kind of create these large these these large and very very clear structures that that feel like they're they 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 are going somewhere and yet inside of that structure there's play there's freedom there's there's uh flexibility and um so yeah i've, I've been you know digging into his work and his scores to to sort of understand a bit better i think he was kind of i think he was kind of straining towards something like this idea of a hyperlink score um but you know, he he died before the internet uh, <laughs> came around. So um, yeah. So so anyway, um, that's fantastic, man. That's fantastic, and it was uh, it's a fantastic record. Soma Schema is the latest record. Um, man, thanks so much for doing this. I want to have you back on. I think that there's a lot more to talk about <laughs> yeah. uh, that we can get into. There's there's a lot of fascinating ideas here that are really really interesting to me. Well, it was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for yeah, oh, man. having my, me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. We'll do it again for sure. We'll do it Sounds again great. for sure. All right. Sounds thanks, great. Joshua. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. That was my talk with double bassist and composer Joshua Stamper. If you are enjoying the Bass Shed podcast, please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it. Uh, leave a rating, leave a comment, tell your friends, do all the things. You can find the Bass Shed on Instagram at the underscore bass underscore shed. Uh, yeah, Facebook is still down. I haven't, I haven't, you know, got that back off the ground. I got too many other things that are way more important to me than Facebook to deal with. So, but Instagram, I'm still there. Uh, Twitter at Bayshed on Twitter. And you can always stop by thebayshed.com and shoot me a note if you'd like to. All right. All right. Joshua, Joshua really, he dropped some heavy concepts there. I think, man, he's, when he was speaking about, you know, creating this kind of room in this environment and, in like geometry terms, right? Like actually having a width and a depth and a height. And that's really, really fascinating to me. Cause when I think about, you know, entering an atmosphere musically, it's just kind of a vibe, you know, it's a feeling. It's a, it's the feeling of an atmosphere, but really thinking about it in, you know, like, a, like some kind of floor plan or something. That's, that's so next level. Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, highly recommend checking out his album. Again, I will have links to it at thebayshed.com backslash podcast backslash Joshua Stamper. Brilliant. Brilliant composer. Brilliant composer. I can't say enough great things. Brilliant. Brilliant work. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got, folks. That's all I got for this one. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will catch you on the next one in a minute.